0: Welcome to another edition of the Washington Hour Home Podcast. This is episode three. My name is Eric Ebel. I'm your fearless field guide to Washington State history, heritage, and culture, recording from my brand new studio, technically under the stairs in my house. But regardless, it's a wonderful place to record and I think the audio is going to sound much better. So, what are we talking about today? We're all familiar with the historic events that led to the American Revolution. When the American colonies seceded from rule by Great Britain. Somewhat less known, perhaps, are the reasons behind the second war between England and the U.S. That's the War of 1812. But it's unlikely you can find very many people who can tell you about the third war between these two superpowers, which took place, or more accurately, almost took place in the San Juan Islands in 1859. This is the story of the Pig War, otherwise known as the Bloodless War or the War That Wasn't. This is a very interesting story because you have a number of major characters who all have roles to play in this developing story. And all of these characters and their actions left a lasting impact on Washington State and its history, specifically up in the San Juan Island area. It's important, I think in order to fully understand the motives behind these events that are to follow, that we become familiar with those players, because this is a worldwide saga that unfolded off Washington's coast just before the American Civil War. It was a time in America when tensions were running high. The rift between the northern and southern states in the Fragile Union was being strained daily, and many folks were ready to see their infant country divided in two. There are two sides in the Pig War. One is the Americans, and one is the British. We're going to begin with the Americans. So let's start introducing them. First up, Democratic President James Buchanan. James Buchanan was the 15th president he served from 1857 to 1861. Now, he'd long been criticized for adhering to a peace-at-any-price policy when dealing with the northern states and the southern states. He would do anything to make sure that war doesn't break out. However, he was likely doing what he thought was best for our young country, and was under a great deal of pressure to keep the pot from boiling over on his watch. So imagine how blindsided he must have been when he got a report one morning stating that an international crisis was about to erupt almost 3,000 miles away on the Pacific coast. Unfortunately for him, the New York Herald ran a story about the dispute, causing him to sternly instruct his military commanders in the region to avoid any precipitous action. Also unfortunately for Buchanan was the fact that Brigadier General William S. Harney was that military commander. Now, here's a little about General Harney's background. In 1834, Harney was charged with the possible death of a female slave named Hannah by whipping her to death over the theft of some keys. The story was reported in the Cincinnati Journal, which called Henry, quote, a monster, exclamation point, end quote. Shortly after, Harney moved to Virginia to avoid capture by a mob of citizens who were outraged by Hannah's death. During the Mexican-American War in the late 1840s, Harney raised a few companies of volunteers under the pretext of attacking Indians in Texas, but then he proceeded to instead invade Mexico without orders against the directive of General Winfield Scott. Now here's a little bit about the history of that invasion of Mexico. Harney quickly became cut off by Mexican defenses and retreated, losing several men and boosting the morale of the Mexican army. Generals Zachary Taylor and John Wool cited Harney's, quote, extreme imbecility and manifest incapacity, end quote, in official correspondence. General Scott ordered Harney to turn over his command. Harney refused, and he was court-martialed. In a later battle, Harney grotesquely inflated the number of Mexican soldiers he'd defeated, reporting upwards of 2,000 dead, when the actual number was closer to just 150. During the battle for Mexico City, Harney was tasked with executing a number of American deserters. He devised an unusual method of dispatching them by putting them all in a wagon under a gallows with ropes around their necks and forced them to watch the battle until a final flag was raised over the capital. When the Stars and Stripes was finally hoisted up, which was coincidentally hoisted by Captain George Pickett, Harney gave the orders and the wagons were driven out from under the deserters, leaving them dangling in the air, strangling to death. Harney was also well known for treating junior officers with terrible contempt. By 1859, at least two had been court-martialed, one resigned, and one was a fugitive after being so enraged by Harney that he drew his pistol on the general. And now General Harney is the man calling the shots in the region. The man Harney tapped to carry out his irresponsible actions in the San Juans was none other than Captain George Pickett, who, upon hearing of the situation, famously declared, We'll make a bunker hill of it! This is clearly not a man looking to avoid a potential war. Near the beginning of the American Civil War, Pickett, born in Richmond, Virginia, enlisted in the Confederate Army, attaining the rank of Brigadier General. He's best known for two things, his ruthless treatment of Confederate deserters... He did execute at least 20 of them during the Civil War and the famously failed attack on Union troops during the Battle of Gettysburg, now known as Pickett's Charge. After the Civil War, he fled to Canada for a number of years until President Grant let him return without fear of retribution. The man tasked with bringing the escalating situation in the San Juans under control was old fuss and feathers himself, General Winfield Scott, hero of the War of 1812, the Indian Wars, the Mexican-American War the Civil War, and a number of smaller skirmishes. This guy was famous. And he didn't get to where he was by making bad decisions. He was also the unsuccessful presidential candidate of the Whig Party in 1852. He was six feet, five inches tall. He remained the tallest man ever nominated by a major party. Now, Scott lost to Democrat Franklin Pierce in that general election, but he remained a popular national figure. President Buchanan knew that if anyone could defuse a potential war with Great Britain over a pig on the other side of the continent, it was the man who earned his nickname for insistence on military bearing, courtesy, appearance, and discipline. Central Washington University professor Kent Richards once wrote of Isaac Stevens that he was a man either loved or hated, but seldom ignored. A firm supporter of Franklin Pierce's candidacy for president of the United States in 1852, Stevens was rewarded by President Pierce on March 17, 1853, by being named governor of the newly created Washington Territory. However you feel about the man who negotiated the treaties that put Native Americans onto reservations in Washington, which ultimately led to the Indian Wars of the mid-1850s, few could argue that he was just trying to carry out his orders to the best of his knowledge and abilities. Although sometimes thought of as a hothead, he acted with commendable restraint in the matter of the San Juan dispute, agreeing to, quote, "...abstain from all acts on disputed grounds which are calculated to provoke any conflicts." Unquote. Not much is known about the man who actually caused the only fatality in the Pig War, but Lyman Cutler left Kentucky with dreams of striking it rich in the gold rush of 1849. Those dreams never did materialize, however. Lyman had heard that the San Juan Islands were part of the United States, so the failed prospector decided to quit the gold rush and move up north. Under the Donation Land Claim Act of 1850, any white male citizen over the years of 21 was entitled to 160 free acres, so Cutler staked his claim on the island. By April 1859, he had a small cabin and enough land with rich topsoil for a nice potato patch. His cabin also happened to be the nearest, geographically, to the Hudson's Bay Company's livestock ranch. Let's switch sides and look at the British team. Our first Englishman in this story is Colonial Governor James Douglas. Now, he spent 19 years working in Fort Vancouver and served as a clerk until 1835 when he was promoted to chief trader. Four years later, he was promoted to Chief Factor, the highest rank in the Hudson Bay Company. In 1849, Britain leased the entirety of Vancouver Island to the Hudson Bay Company under the condition that a colony be created. Douglas moved the entire headquarters of the western portion of the company from Fort Vancouver to Fort Victoria, eventually leaving his position with the HBC to become governor of the colony of Vancouver Island. Interestingly, when he died in Victoria of a heart attack on August 2, 1877, at age 73, his funeral procession was possibly the largest in the history of British Columbia. He's now interred in the Ross Bay Cemetery. The next person to know is Rear Admiral Robert L. Baines, a hero of Great Britain's Greek War of Independence and the Crimean War, and who turned out to also be a hero in the Pig War. Baines's Sound in British Columbia is named for him, and the town of Ganges on Salt Spring Island and the waters offshore, Ganges Harbor, are named for his flagship, the HMS Ganges. He was appointed commander-in-chief Pacific Station in 1857 and refused to obey orders from then-Governor Douglas to land marines on San Juan Island to engage American soldiers. He's credited with adopting a policy of non-intervention that helped diffuse what the British refer to as The San Juan Boundary Dispute of 1859. Sir Geoffrey Thomas Phipps Hornby was a Royal Navy officer who saw action at the capture of Acre in November 1840 during the Egyptian-Ottoman War. Following a change of government, Hornby became commanding officer of the frigate HMS Tribune on the Pacific Station in 1858, August. He's largely credited with using peaceful diplomacy to facilitate the end to rising tensions on the San Juan Island, eventually overseeing the transfer of ownership to the United States. The naval historian Sir William Close, who knew Hornby well, wrote that, quote, he was a natural diplomatist and an unrivaled tactician. To a singular independence and uprightness of character, he added a mastery of technical detail and a familiarity with contemporary thought and progress that were unusual in those days among officers of his standing." Charles John Griffin was a well-respected herdsman. Originally from Ireland, a no-nonsense kind of guy, Griffin was adept at managing the HBC's large estate, despite the constant harassment by United States customs agents attempting to levy taxes for the livestock, grazing on what they considered their land. A probably apocryphal story claims that, upon learning that Lyman Cutler had shot one of his pigs, Cutler said to Griffin, It was eating my potatoes! To which Griffin replied, It's up to you to keep your potatoes out of my pig! The legacy left by Charles Griffin and his staff is still apparent. Many of San Juan Island's roads today trace the paths of the sheep runs carved through the forest and around the tremendous rocks left behind by glaciers. Now, there's a few more characters in this story that we're going to talk about. The first is German Emperor and King of Prussia, none other than his imperial and royal majesty, Kaiser Wilhelm I. That was his preferred title at one point, which was much shorter than his formal title, His Imperial and Royal Majesty William I, by the grace of God, German Emperor and King of Prussia, Margrave of Brandenburg, Burgrave of Nuremberg, Count of Hohenzollern, Sovereign and Supreme Duke of Silesia, and of the County of Glatz, Grand Duke of the Lower Rhine and of Posen, Duke of Saxony, of Westphalia, of Angria, of Pomerania, Lüneburg... Holstein and Schleswig, of Magdeburg, of Bremen, of Gulders, Cleves, Jülich, and Berg, Duke of the Wends and the Kassubs, of Crossen, Lauenburg, and Mecklenburg, Landgrave of the Hesse and Thuringia, Margrave of Upper and Lower Lusatia, Prince of Orange, Prince of Rugen, of East Friesland, of Paderborn, and Speermont of Halberstadt, Münster, Minden, Osnabrück, Hildensheim of Verden, Kamen, Fulda, Nassau, and Moors, Princely Count of Hennenburg, Count of Mark of Ravensburg, of Hohenstein, Tecklenburg and Lingen of Mansfield, Sigmaringen, and Veringen, Lord of Frankfurt, period. That is a mouthful. Back to the story. Under the leadership of Wilhelm and his minister, President Otto von Bismarck, Prussia achieved the establishment of the German Empire as a politically and administratively integrated nation in 1871. Wilhelm was described as polite, gentlemanly, and, while a staunch conservative, more open to certain classical liberal ideas. A highly regarded, internationally known head of state, he was an excellent choice for a neutral third-party arbiter when the U.S. and Great Britain decided to settle the Pig War boundary disputes. Incidentally, he was the first German emperor and survived three—count them, three—assassination attempts. And speaking of assassination, the last and most well-known player in this porcine parable is, of course, the pig, the lone fatality in the war that bears its name. It was reportedly either a large black or Berkshire boar. Berkshire pigs are a rare breed of pig originating from the English county of Berkshire. They're prized for their juiciness, flavor, and tenderness. The Large Black, occasionally called the Devon, Cornwall Black, or Bogu, is a breed of domestic pig also native to Great Britain. It is a hardy and docile pig with large black sows known for having large litters. The breed's foraging ability make it particularly useful for extensive farming, and it was popular in the early 1900s. Regardless of the species, these pigs are large and always on the lookout for their next meal, even if it doesn't belong to them. Now let's get into the meat of the story. In 1818, just three years past the end of the War of 1812, the United States and Great Britain signed a treaty that set their boundary along the 49th parallel, from Minnesota to the Rocky Mountains, which were then known as the Stony Mountains. The tenuous peace lasted all the way through the 1840s, when the Hudson's Bay Trading Company, which was already in the Pacific Northwest, began finding it increasingly difficult to prevent American settlers from moving north of the Willamette Valley in Oregon country. In 1843 at Fort Vancouver, which is in present-day Vancouver, Washington, Hudson's Bay Company Deputy Chief Factor James Douglas received his orders from across the Atlantic to select a site on Vancouver Island to the north to establish a new fort. See, once this treaty was signed, it essentially drew the line that we know today as the northern boundary of the United States. And if you are in Vancouver, Washington, as a Brit running a fur trading company, Suddenly you find yourself on foreign soil. After that treaty gets signed, those land claims no longer hold any water. So the Hudson's Bay Company had to look for a new headquarters north of the 49th Parallel. That's when they decided Vancouver Island was the place that they wanted to set up. So Chief Factor James Douglas selected an area known to the natives as Kamauusan and renamed it Victoria. Within the year, the stockade, stores, warehouse, and private quarters inside the fort were all finished. Shortly thereafter, British supply ships began stopping at Fort Victoria before heading to Fort Vancouver, marking the effective end of the Hudson's Bay Trading Company's transfer of their western headquarters. Boundary disputes between Oregon Country of the United States and the Columbia District of Great Britain were resolved on June 15, 1846, with the signing of the Oregon Treaty, which is sometimes erroneously called the Treaty of Washington. That treaty continued the 49th parallel boundary past the Rocky Mountains all the way to the Pacific coast. It should be noted, however, that Fort Victoria is significantly south of the 49th parallel. In fact, Here's a direct quote from Article 1 of the Oregon Treaty. From the point on the 49th parallel of North Latitude, where the boundary laid down in existing treaties and conventions between Great Britain and the United States terminates, which was at the Rocky Mountains, the line of boundary between the territories of Her Britannic Majesty and those of the United States shall be continued westward along the said 49th parallel of North Latitude to the middle of the Channel. That is an important part of this treaty which separates the continent from Vancouver's island and thence southerly through the middle of said channel and of Fuca's straits to the Pacific Ocean. Now, the problem is is that there's actually two straits that could be called the middle of the channel, Harrow Strait along the west side of the San Juan Islands and Rosario Strait along the east side. In 1846, there was still some uncertainty about the geography of the region. The most commonly available maps were made by George Vancouver and published in 1798. Charles Wilkes made some in 1845. Both cases had the maps unclear in the vicinity of the southeastern coast of Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands, and as a result, Harrow Strait is not fully clear either. Both sides continued to dispute the treaty's language for another ten years. Then, 1856, the US and Britain set up a boundary commission to resolve a number of issues regarding the international boundary. Because the Hudson's Bay Company had been grazing sheep on San Juan Island for several years, they claimed the islands for Great Britain. From the start, the British maintained that Rosario Strait was required by the treaty's wording and was intended by the treaty's framers, while the Americans had the same opinion for Harrow Strait. The two sides continued to discuss the issue into December 1857 until each side's argument was clear and neither could be convinced of the other. At the final meeting... The British suggested a compromise line through the San Juan Channel, which would give the U.S. all the main islands except San Juan Island. This offer was rejected, and the commission adjourned, agreeing to report back to their respective governments. That was in 1857. For the next two years, the Hudson's Bay Company continued their cattle farming operations on San Juan Island. And during that time, American tax collectors repeatedly attempted to collect taxes for the grazing of cattle on the island, which they think belongs to the United States. Yet when threats of Indian attacks arose, American and British citizens united inside the Hudson's Bay Company stockade for defensive purposes. It was those threats that led to the transfer of Captain George Pickett, commander of Company D of the 9th Infantry Regiment stationed at Fort Stillicum, to Bellingham Bay to help quell the Indian insurgency of 1856. The discovery of gold in the area brought hundreds of Americans from Oregon and California to Vancouver Island. Those miners who didn't strike it rich, which was just about everyone, often settled in the area, prompting American surveyors to begin laying out plots of land on San Juan Island, to the great annoyance of the Hudson's Bay Company. Now this is the part where the stage gets set for an international confrontation. By 1859, the British were still fully engaged in farming operations on San Juan Island. Why would they stop? It's their land, they think. But by this time, just shy of 30 American settlers had arrived to homestead that same island, including Mr. Lyman Cutler. That tipped the population imbalance in favor of the Americans. Now there's more Americans on the island than there are British employees of the Hudson's Bay Company. Cutler's homestead was the one that was closest to the HBC farming headquarters, where the sheeps and the pigs grazed freely. In fact, there was a map drawn by 2nd Lieutenant James Forsyth showing the location of the American settlements in relation to the HBC operation. You can find the picture of that map on my website, WashingtonOurHome.com. Cutler proceeded to build a fence around his property in order to protect a third of an acre of potatoes he'd been trying to cultivate, but the loose pigs from the HBC were always looking for their next meal. Repeatedly, they knocked over one side of Cutler's fence to uproot his potatoes, He complained to Charles John Griffin, the Irishman in charge of HBC farming operations, but was informed instead that the HBC believed Cutler to be trespassing on British land. Several days later, June 15th, finding yet another pig uprooting his potatoes, Lyman Cutler had enough. He loaded a double-barreled shotgun, shouldered an ammunition bag, and flew out of his house, chasing the pig through the woods. At the edge of the tree line, the pig reportedly stopped to look back at Lyman, giving Cutler the moment he needed to raise the rifle and shoot it dead. (laughs) Thus resulting in the first, last, and only casualty of the impending war. Cutler proceeded then to find Griffin and tell him what happened. He even offered to pay $10 for the pig, which would have been a fair price on the East Coast where the pigs are plenty, but possibly not what a pig was worth in the territorial American West. Griffin responded that the pig was worth $100 and the two men had words you can imagine what those would be, before the dispute was brought to Governor James Douglas. Now, remember that General William Harney had been placed in charge of overseeing American forces in the Northwest. For Harney, that's tantamount to an administrative transfer into obscurity. Still, the man has a job to do, and it was during one of Harney's infrequent visits to his scattered commands that he reached out to Governor Douglas in Victoria and was told about the pig incident. Seeing an opportunity to reinvigorate his career, Harney sailed to San Juan Island immediately to visit with American settlers and devised a way to justify sending troops to the island. Eventually, he circulated a petition requesting military aid to defend against alleged Indian attacks. Can you imagine that? A general in the United States military going house to house on the island to get people to sign a petition asking for that same general to bring a bunch of military to that island. That's surprising. I don't think you could get away with that today. The island homesteaders eventually signed, and Harney took the petition to Fort Bellingham to meet with Captain Pickett. Now, Pickett was given autonomy to act any way he saw fit on San Juan Island, And proceeded to transfer troops and supplies to the island, again from Fort Stillicum and Bellingham, after issuing a proclamation that the entirety of the disputed area is now American territory. Who or what he thought gave him that authority may never be known. But Governor Douglas obviously disagreed, and in response sent a police force to the island as well. In the following days, three British warships — the Satellite, the Tribune, and the Plumper — that's what they called it — arrived in the harbor with a thousand men and guns trained on the small American military encampment. The American ship, the Massachusetts, was also nearby, and Governor Douglas began urging British military captain Jeffrey Hornby to land his troops and attack Pickett. Hornby refused, citing the need for cooler heads to win the day. Thank God. Under a blanket of fog, American Colonel Silas Casey, the father of the U.S. Army Engineer Thomas Casey, after whom Washington State's Fort Casey is named, left Fort Stillicum and landed reinforcement troops on San Juan Island. By August 10, 1859, 461 Americans with 14 cannon were opposed by five British warships mounting 70 guns and carrying 2,140 men. A month-long standoff ensued during which governor douglas ordered british rear admiral robert l baines to land marines on san juan island and engage the american soldiers baines like hornby also refused deciding that quote two great nations in a war over a squabble about a pig was foolish local commanding officers on both sides had been given essentially the same orders defend yourself but absolutely do not fire the first shot For several days, the British and U.S. soldiers exchanged insults, each side attempting to goad the other into firing the first shot. But fortunately, discipline held on both sides, and thus no shots were fired. Finally, by the time President Buchanan found out what had been taking place on the other side of the country, he was desperately trying to keep the northern and southern states from collapsing into civil war with his peace-at-any-price policy. He didn't have the time or the interest to deal with international incidents, so he instructed General Harney to stand down and consult with others on how to proceed. Buchanan then chose General Winfield Scott to negotiate with Governor Douglas and resolve the growing crisis. As a result of the negotiations, both sides agreed to retain joint military occupation of the island until a final settlement could be reached, reducing their presence to a token force of no more than a hundred men each. During the following years of joint military occupation, the small British and American units on San Juan Island actually had an amicable mutual social life, visiting each other's camps to celebrate respective national holidays and holding various athletic competitions park rangers tell visitors the biggest threat to peace on the island during these years was the large amounts of alcohol that was available. This state of affairs continued for 12 more years. In 1866, the colony of Vancouver Island was merged with the colony of British Columbia to form an enlarged colony of British Columbia. In 1871, the enlarged colony joined the newly formed Dominion of Canada. That year, Great Britain and the United States signed the Treaty of Washington, which dealt with various differences between the two nations, including border issues involving the newly formed Dominion of Canada. Among the results of the treaty was a decision to resolve the San Juan dispute by international arbitration by bringing in Kaiser Wilhelm I of Germany, chosen to act as arbitrator. Wilhelm referred the issue to a three-man arbitration commission, which met in Geneva for nearly a year. On October 21, 1872, the Commission decided in favor of the United States. The arbiter chose the American preferred marine boundary via Harrow Strait to the west of the islands over the British preferred Rosario Strait, which lay to the east, thereby finalizing the decades long dispute and giving sole ownership of San Juan Island to the Americans. On November 25, 1872, the British withdrew their Royal Marines from the British camp. The Americans followed by July 1874, officially bringing closure to the Pig War. Today, the Union Jack still flies above English camp, being raised and lowered daily by park rangers. It's actually one of the few places without diplomatic status where United States government employees regularly hoist the flag of another country. So what lessons can be derived from this interesting and little-known chapter of Washington state history? Well, I like to remind myself at times that In life, metaphorically speaking, pigs are always going to try to eat your potatoes. What's important is to take a deep breath, have some bacon, and know that you can always grow more potatoes. That wraps up this edition of the Washington Our Home podcast, the Pig War edition. I hope you learned a lot. I hope you're entertained. Please don't forget to check out my website, WashingtonOurHome.com. Visit me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I have lots and lots of photos on Pinterest. And you can find links to all those on the website, WashingtonOurHome.com. Until next time, I'm Eric Ebel, and I'll see you somewhere in Washington.